Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook. I'm Matthew Thiel, a certified financial planner with RPA Wealth Management. I'm joined by president of RPA Wealth Management, Brent Pasqua. Brent, what's going on today? Hey, everyone. How are you doing, Matthew? Oh, I'm doing great. Can't complain. I'm full of baguettes and wine from my trip to France. Also with us today is Josh Winterswick. Josh, what's going on today? Hi, Matt. Um, I'm doing well. You look very uh, relaxed after your vacation. Yeah, and I'm speaking French, too. Very nice. So Josh, what's on deck for today's show? Today we're going to talk about our five keys to becoming a successful investor. And before we get started off with talking about those five keys, uh, we just want to start with a quick question. Brent, when did you start investing? I started investing, well, Matthew, what years were you in New York? From 2008 to 2011. So I think I started investing somewhere around 2008 or nine, And I made one of those mistakes that we always talk about. I asked my friend, Matthew, who was living in New York, what stocks I should buy. And he gave me a couple of stock picks. And then what I did was I took a magazine. I forget one of the money magazines that are out there. And I looked up the list of mutual funds and I just found the ones with the highest returns. And I just bought a few of those. Big mistake, listening to a friend and buying some mutual funds, but that's how I got started. Do you remember what, what stock picks they were? I do, I remember a couple of them. We should probably leave them off, but one of them was a foreign bank, also stock. <laughs> okay. But Matt had all the stock tips because he was in New York. He was closer to Wall Street. So I figured I should trust him on what he thought, what were the good stocks right, were. Right, I right. thought one of the stock tips was really good, wasn't it? Which, um, one, which one was it, Matt? Uh, I guess we could say, I thought, didn't you buy Under Armour? I did, and Under Armour was good, but I think I held it for too long because then it became very bad again. Yeah, that's the problem, right? You didn't know how to exit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nobody does. <laughs> I, I thought at the time I was a financial planner and I knew how to invest, but then I was taking investment stock tips from a guy writing in New York for a financial magazine. And then when, you know, a few months later asking what to do with them and he didn't respond. Yep. You, you, you were taking the stock advice from some random dude over the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Matt and I would communicate through one of the chat things online. And Is it we, AIM? Yeah, we were, yeah, we were talking on AIM and getting stock tips, but I guess he left out the part of when to sell. Yeah, I'm just now finding that out. So if I still have it, should I sell it now? Yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> I, I mean, that's the thing with stock tips, right? Everyone will tell you when to buy, but no one tells you when to actually sell the position. Or what to do with the position. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Matt, what about you? When did you start investing? So I started investing in 2003, but it was with fake money. I was um, in high school at the time. My dad told me that he would give me a couple thousand dollars to invest myself if I could prove to him I could do it in a fake trading account. So I did it and he was decently impressed. So he signed the custodial forms and I opened my own account at the age of 16. That was 2004. I didn't do very well. I could tell you the first two stocks I purchased, one was Nortel and the other was Intel. And once I ended up losing a couple hundred dollars, I got scared and sold them. And then I ended up doing that for probably the next six or seven years, just buying stocks. Some, some of them would make money, some of them wouldn't, and I'd get scared when they drop and I'd sell them, which is a really bad strategy. Which is kind of, in a way, what led us to start creating our investment philosophy, which we'll go over in a little bit. But Josh, when did you start? I started in college. So I think it was my junior year at Cal State San Bernardino, which would have been 2008. 
a great time to start investing and being in markets. But my first account too is fake. Our finance teacher made us open up like a fake account. We had to like do a presentation on a stock and they made us buy them. And I remember mine was Chipotle. Kind of funny that we eat Chipotle in this office all the time. But my first stock purchase was Chipotle. I did my whole project on that. And then eventually when I started to work at Citigroup, I opened up my first real account and started trading and didn't know what I was doing at all. Kind of the strategy of magazines and stock tips from friends or family so uh but lost some money doing that that way and it's funny that you say that that's kind of led us to the investment philosophy we've had today so not only the research supports our philosophy but also the experience (laughs) the the real life experience (laughs) that it took us several years to figure out but can i make two points yeah did you say you purchased chipotle and did a project on them yeah, yeah, but the Chipotle stock was the first one I purchased in the fake account. I didn't make any money off of it because at that time it was it did really really well. Right, you know when he makes fun of us always for getting Chipotle, I feel like he secretly loves Chipotle. <laughs> no, yeah. no, and if he doesn't have a lunch that day for some reason, he just always ends up going back to Chipotle. Yeah, no, his, we, his we Mexican about McDonald's. It. You sold me. It's you know we don't want to have decision fatigue, so Chipotle is just the easiest you know relatively healthy option when I don't bring lunch. Point two, I did one of those stock trading like contests or courses in college and I actually won that. Oh, did you? Yeah, I smoked the whole class. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. Because at that point you had already been investing for several years. So Yeah. That's neat. I and it, that. it was a really good market. It was um, 2007 market. So mm-hmm. it was very volatile and a lot of stuff was going down sure. and up. Yeah, so probably had you uh, your class continued through 2008 and 2009, you probably would have lost that competition, I'm assuming. Yeah, potentially. But I, I was pretty bearish in 2008. I actually didn't end up losing any money oh, that's because of where I was. I was in cash. He was just telling me to buy stocks from New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. As I was finishing college, too, it was funny because the market you know, started to crash. And you had like finance teachers ripping out like theories in textbooks. Like, this doesn't apply anymore. And that was like an interesting time to be like trading stocks and them trying to like explain what was going on at that time. So that was really interesting in 2008, 2009, I was finishing up college. So I think the moral of this intro is we could all agree that individually trading stocks is a bad idea. And don't listen to your friend or teachers. (laughs) (laughs) And this is probably why we came up with our five keys to being a successful investor as our investment philosophy. Brent, what are the options to invest in when you're going to invest? Some of the different things that you can invest into are savings accounts. Um, Savings accounts are generally liquid. They're not really a real type of investment, but they are a way to invest your money or have some interest on it. You can invest into CDs at the bank or certificates, deposits online, bonds, stocks, uh, real estate. And of course, you can invest into commodities like gold, silver, oil, those types of things. Yeah, from a risk-reward standpoint, the savings accounts and the CDs are essentially cash-like instruments. They're safer. And then as we go, bonds get a little bit more risky, um, and then stocks, real estate, and then the most volatile or risky is going to be your commodities. When we're talking about creating a good globally diversified portfolio, we could use all of those. But for the most part, we typically just focus on bonds and stocks, which are usually purchased via uh, mutual funds or ETFs. Josh, mutual funds definition? Yeah, I think it's a good time to explain what a mutual fund. I know we mentioned them a lot on our previous podcast, but never maybe give a really good definition of them. But mutual funds, what they do is they group securities like bonds or stocks together 
to give you more exposure to more stocks or more bonds and it makes it easier for the consumer to purchase you know it could be a specific sector or all of the stocks in the u.s stock market but it's grouping stocks or bonds or even both of them together to make it easier for the consumer to get more exposure yeah, so it's uh, essentially a bucket creating globally diversified portfolio. Brent, how many stocks can you put into mutual funds? Like, what's the number? Isn't it like around like 14,000 or something like that? Yeah. 10,000? Yeah, it's some high number like that. Yeah, and bond funds work the same exact way. There's also exchange traded funds, which are just like mutual funds, except they trade via the stock exchanges, uh, which is a little bit more complex and probably above today's show. But just know when you hear mutual funds and ETFs, they're basically pools of stocks or bonds. Pretty good? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're going to get into the five keys now. Josh, what's our first key to being a successful investor? Our first key when we're talking about being a successful investor is going to be emotionally consistent or having emotion consistency. And the one thing that I think about when we're thinking about staying emotionally consistent is staying disciplined through ups and downs in the market. That is something that we've already talked about. Matt, you had mentioned, I saw the stock going down. I got nervous. I sold based off of emotion, right? Um, There's nervousness, there's fear. Um, And then we deal with that when the market's going up as well as when the market goes up, we have a lot of optimism within the market. So our decisions sometimes aren't based off of a certain philosophy or a certain strategy. It's based more off of fear. And many people struggle to separate that their emotions from their investing strategies, especially when markets are going up and down. Right. Totally. So what what I found that people do is they really don't have, have a clear understanding. They think that when the market starts to drop, that the best strategy is to also sell. But that's actually not true. And, and one interesting fact that we know from historical research is that 25% of the time going out throughout history, the stock market actually falls. So that means every one in four years, we expect it to decline. And it actually declined last year, right? So in 2018 was a down Correct. year for the stock market. Yep. The other thing that I kind of find unique is the way investor psychology works, where Brent, what's your favorite store? Let's just say for retail, Banana Republic. All right. So if Banana Republic was having a big sale, would you run out of the store or would you go in there and purchase stuff? That's the only time I will even ever step foot into the store. So in the stock market, people seem to do the opposite thing. Right. Whenever stocks go down, they're essentially on sale or cheaper than they were. But for some reason, they run in panic. Sure. It's funny. I know we've been talking a lot about Ramit. You like him too, personal finance guy. And he put it really well. I saw him on his Instagram page yesterday and said, you know, it's not timing the market. It's about the time in the market. And that's just a really good summary of that, of, you know, knowing not, we're not trying to time the market or base it off of this emotion of going up and down. It's, you know, understanding the time that you have to be in the market. So I know that can overlap, overlap of those keys, but it just kind of stuck out in my head yesterday when I saw that. I think what helps create consistency with someone's emotion and be less reactive is really having a plan and having an understanding of what the big picture is. If you're planning for retirement or you're transitioning to retirement, if you've sat with an advisor, you laid out a very detailed and thorough plan, you know what you're going to need from your money, you know what your withdrawals are going to be, then you, it creates a little bit more of a calmness that 
if the market goes down, you have an understanding, you know that that's going to happen. We know it happens 25% of the time at least. And so it's not a big deal when the market drops like it has over the last couple of weeks where it's been pretty significant. We haven't really had any phone calls. Nobody's panicking because they really know that there's a bigger picture and there's a plan involved here. When people do call, I mean, how do you manage that emotion? I always go back to their big picture. So we could always reference in their plan, this is their percentage of withdrawals, or this is what's going on. And and sometimes people just want to know what your thoughts are on the news. They don't always want to be reactive, but it's that reassurance that they sometimes need, but it's so minimal. It is so minimal, but they do know that there's a bigger picture. If they are in more of a panic, then always going back through the plan is such a consistent and, and way to help them. I think that's a great point that you made too about the media and, and like the news, because that can drive that emotion. Right. We're talking about being emotionally consistent, but you're always looking at, you know, stock market news and their job is to, you know, sell views or clicks. What are they going to do? Sell you fear. Right. Right. Or optimism. The two things that we talked about. You have anything to add to emotional consistency, man? Yeah, totally. So I got an inside story on that. So when I was working in New York, I was actually working for a financial media company. And actually our best days when the company made the most money was when the stock market was going down because it was so easy to sell the fear headlines to essentially readers. And so that's all the news companies do is they sell fear to people. Yeah, that's interesting. So those optimistic days when the Dow's up, you know, 2%, you know, thousand points and all the stocks are going crazy. No one's clicking on anything. No one's watching. Right. And it doesn't even look if you put on like CNBC and the market's down and like the whole screen is red and it's like flashing, like market drop 400 points and everything's flashing and red. And like, it's causing like me anxiety looking at the screen. Like I should be doing something. Like why don't they put it in blue or something (laughs) or make it pink? (laughs) Yeah. And like everyone's face looks concerned (laughs) and uh, like on the TV, like how are we going to stay emotionally consistent when that's where you're getting your news from and it's striking fear in you? I can always tell that the stock market's a little oversold when CNBC runs their special markets turmoil. And they usually put that on after uh, mad money. Oh, yeah. So it usually starts around 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern time, and it's special edition, markets in turmoil. Then it's uh, like Kelly Evans and David Faber. Yeah. And it's like, okay, bottom's coming pretty soon. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Anything else to add on emotional consistency? I'm good. Okay. So stay disciplined, right? What's the next one? We have low cost. So Brent, do you want to tackle low cost for us? Yeah, so almost a majority of all investments in some form or fashion have a cost or expense on them. And depending on the investment, the expenses can range really from low to high and really everything in between. And in general in life, the more cost or expense you pay for something, generally the better your quality you're going to get. Like let's say you're at a hotel and you want to stay at a five-star hotel. You're going to pay a pretty good price to stay per night you're going to get what you pay for. Same thing happens with cars or food. You know, you pay a little bit more for something, you're going to get a little bit nicer quality. But that's not true in investing. Investing is almost the exact opposite. Just because it has a higher cost doesn't mean you're going to get a better return. And actually, cost draws the return down. Cost is a big component of the overall returns. Yeah, let's put some numbers behind that. Great points, Brent. So let's say your investment gained... 10%, but you paid a 2% fee on that investment. Well, what you're left with at the end of the day in your pocket is 8%. 
So that fee eats into your return. So if you could keep the cost down, it's going to be more going into your pocket at the end of the day. Josh, anything to add? No, I think just a good example too, you know, related to travel. If you've, you know, found a cheaper ticket by shopping online for your plane ticket, you know, and you paid 500 instead of a thousand, that's 500 more dollars you have to spend, you know, while you're on your trip, right? We're, we're looking for that discount, but we're keeping the airline experience the same. Right. So the investment experience is, let's say, the same, but you're holding on to more of your money. You're just trying to give an analogy to the, the savings. Can I talk about a story about airline travel? Sure. For my last trip, Haley and I, we bought the cheapest ticket on Air France. Don't do that. <laughs> the flight still there's there's so many screaming kids and for a 10-hour flight where we needed to be sleeping it was miserable okay so maybe not europe maybe just to <laughs> vegas save the, yeah. save the money on the vegas yeah flight. you're cool Keep for more vegas. money in your pocket for sure and one thing to be said also about cost is in the past and it still happens now the cost and investment is how a lot of other people get paid. The insurance agent, the broker who sells the mutual fund, the fund manager, there's a lot of people being paid off of that expense. And unless you like paying a lot of people money and not yourself, you know, it's probably not wise to invest into things that cost a lot of money. Right. And Matt, what why is that? Why have you seen consumers, clients pay more for for investments? What's the benefit to the client? Why are they still paying more for investments? I think it's a lack of education. Yep. A lot of times they act, they don't know what they're paying. If you have a fund with a 2% fee, that doesn't sound like that much. But you know, if it's 2% of a million dollar portfolio, you know, that's some real money. That's $20,000 a year. But you can get a better ETF with 0.03% fee. Right, so now we're talking $100. So. Yeah, right now I think the average fund cost is 90 basis points or 0.90%. We're seeing investment funds as low as, like Brent said, 0.03%. Right. Still a big gap. And I think that with the low cost as well is people are being sold on pay these higher fees for better returns, but again, not relating it to not doing the research behind are they actually leading to better returns. Yeah. And, and working with a fee-only advisor, I mean, the core part of working with the advisor is we're trying to always drive cost down for the client to increase the return. I mean, trades have become cheaper. Funds have become cheaper. Everything has become so much cheaper. If you could drive and continue to drive the cost down, it just means more money in the client's pocket. How do people find out how much they're paying in, in the investments? I mean, they could just simply Google the investments that they have and prospectuses pull up online, reports pull up online. I mean, everything's public now, so it's pretty easy to do if you were interested in it. If you uh, Google the ticker symbol, you're looking for a couple of fees. The first fee, if it's a mutual fund, you're going to look at your load fee and then your expense ratio. That's the percent. And then you could do the math to figure out how much you're paying in dollars and cents. Um, and then on an ETF, it's just going to be the expense ratio. Got it. So the looking up the ticker symbol, that's the symbol for the underlying fund or stock, like Bank of America's BA. And then you're looking at um, index fund, mutual fund, expense ratio is the percentage of the money invested that you're paying in a fee. Yeah, absolutely. So the for ETFs to get a good comparison is the most popular one is Spider, S&P 500 shares, and the ticker symbol is SPY, SPY. Compare that to maybe the mutual funds in your 401k or the mutual funds your broker's offering you, and you, you could see the difference in cost. Perfect. Perfect. Anything else on, on low cost, guys? Nope. What's the next one? Uh, stocks and bonds. So 
allocation, stocks and bonds. Matt, do you want to tackle our third key? Yeah, I'll take a shot at this. So stocks and bonds play a huge, have a huge impact on the overall return of a portfolio. And what most people do when they think about investing is they only think about the stock side because it's the side that's a little bit more interesting, but bonds play a huge role. What bonds do is they reduce the overall volatility of the portfolio. And that's a very expensive word for saying that the portfolio will go down a little bit less. And it has a huge impact on your return over time. Generally speaking, the more stock, the higher stock percentage you have in a portfolio, the higher it's going to go up, but the more it's going to go down. And if you add bonds, it'll reduce your upside, but also cap your downside more. So it's sort of a volatility control. Yeah, it's it's a volatility control, and it's also kind of like a sleeping control too, right? Right. Because if you're afraid of volatility, you just add bonds to your portfolio, and then you could sleep at night. And volatility meaning how high it goes up and how low it goes down and the movement in between. Yeah, that's that's a great definition of, it of volatility. It controls the variance, too, of your outcome. Sure. Got it. Keeps the return in a certain box or window. Yeah. For most people, I think the biggest key takeaway here I always try and point to is most likely you don't own have 100% of your money in stock. You have some portion of bonds. If you have a lot of stock, then you're clearly very risk averse and you're okay with the ups and down swings. If you're not, then you probably want to add more bonds to the portfolio. The downside is uh, like Brent was saying earlier, it can impact your plan because now you might need to save more to catch up for the lost upside. So less return, you're having to save more because you're not getting as much interest or growth out of the portfolio. Exactly. Just depends on devising the right plan for you. Yeah, exactly. I always relate bonds too to like the defense yeah. in the portfolio, like the offense-defense strategy to where, you know, offense and defense is when we watch sports. I always think of like the Patriots Atlanta Falcons game where the Falcons just lost all of their defense in the Super Bowl when they were up what was it 28 to like 3 or 28 to 3 or something like yes. that. Had tons of offense, second quarter had no defense. And ultimately they ended up losing the game, right? So that's how I relate it. I mean, I agree. I remember seeing that this last Super Bowl, Patriots-Rams, when the Patriots D just shut down our Rams high-flying yeah, offense. That's another good example. Yeah, I like that one too. I think there are really two really key components in determining how much should be in stocks and how much should be in bonds for our clients. I mean, at least when we're meeting with them. I think those two things are, number one, where is a person comfortable with that volatility that we were talking about with that movement? And that's an easy conversation to have with a client. And once you really start asking good questions, the client will tell you what they're comfortable with. But also number two, what does the financial plan say that their plan needs to sustain itself over the long term based on the stocks and bonds and returns and so forth and their withdrawals from their portfolios? So I think those are two key components that can help you find where you should be stock to bond wise. All right. So moving on, Josh, what is our next key or pillar or number? I think we're on number four right now. Yeah, we're on number four. Fourth key is strategy. So we can also call this our philosophy or, or strategy. I also like to call this like your investment faith. Like, what do you believe in for your investment experience? And almost every every individual investor follows what I like to call the neighbor or cocktail party strategy. We talked about that strategy early on when we were first investing, where I heard this stock was going to really, really outperform or this mutual fund that my neighbor told me about had the best growth last year. 
And we know that, in fact, this is not an actual strategy. It's actually a really good way to just, you know, lose some money. And so what our strategy and, and our key is, is to not only defining a strategy, but sticking to it and using a smartly, globally diversified portfolio investment strategy. And again, we can save this to go even deeper in a further episode, but index-based passive is another word we use for this style of strategy and making sure that it is globally diversified and combining all of these keys along with low cost and sticking to that strategy going forward. I like that, Josh. Uh, Investing faith. I'm going to have to use that. I'm going to steal that from you. You could use that. I'll, I'll allow you. I think you covered it well. In my opinion, what's important is understanding that what your strategy is, is going to dictate your returns. Uh, like Josh said, passive investing is an extremely good strategy for the majority of people. It's going to keep the cost down and it's going to really limit the mistakes. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And I think it just has a better streamlined investment experience like you know focusing on things you can control sticking to a strategy so where you're not guessing there's not forecasting involved and you're relying on academic research with a more passive style strategy or philosophy to really just guide you through your investment experience you know it also helps with that emotional consistency that we talked about in our first key you know when you have that defined strategy so brent what do you feel or what do you think about strategy well i'd like to think that a lot of people don't take tips from their neighbor but i think i made the biggest mistake of all and i listened to what matthew said through an aim chat while he was in new york so i made that critical mistake right off the bat that was a tip from your neighbor yeah it was that was that exact tip because you know for what for every one apple there's hundreds of failures of stocks so the neighbors usually aren't correct yeah and i think we've talked about it before too it's like those experience of the stock pick or chasing mutual fund returns have led us to researching a better investment experience absolutely like what else is out there that we can you know not only help our clients but even for ourselves like how can we achieve a better investment experience? Yep. I think the key, like you said, is have a strategy, understand your strategy and stick with the strategy. And as long as there's the academic research behind it, then the strategy will hopefully work. Right. Right. Matt, do you have anything else to add on strategy? No, well put. We're going to move on to number five or our fifth key for successful investors. It's rebalancing. Matt, do you want to tackle uh, rebalancing? Yeah. So rebalancing is an interesting one. Originally, when we created this, I thought we should have left it off and just made four keys to be a successful investor. The academic research is somewhat mixed on rebalancing in a way. But you guys have heard that old market adage, right? Buy low, sell high. Yes. Kind of what everyone tries to do, but most people end up buying high and selling low. Yes. All of us here have done that before. Yes. Rebalancing does the first one. You're essentially buying low and selling high. So let's pretend that you have a portfolio that's 80% stocks, 20% bonds, and we found that that portfolio is best for your financial plan to accomplish your goals. Well, over time, we expect the stock portion of that portfolio to appreciate. And so it'll probably, it could get up to maybe 85% of your portfolio because stocks have gone higher. It's made you money. Now your portfolio has 85% stock instead of 80. By rebalancing, we'd be selling stocks and taking that money and putting it into the bond side. So obviously if you're at 85% stocks, your portfolio is at 15% bond. So by selling 5% stock and putting yourself back down to 80% and putting it in the bond bucket, you're selling high, which is something most investors fail to do. So it's like a natural way to sell high. Like 
based off of your allocation and looking at that percentage. Yeah, it's a forced way to do it. It's a forced way. Yeah, yeah. maybe not natural, but a a strategic way yeah. to be selling high. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of like rebalancing your tires. Then, if you're driving on one side of your car, your car's pulling, and one side of the car is the treads running low on the tire. If you rebalance those tires and shift them around, you become balanced again. Absolutely. That's a great analogy, Brent. Yeah, no, I love that analogy for rebalance too. Because, you know, the longer you go without doing it, the more it could hurt your car or your portfolio, right, yep. as well. So you want to have a good strategy behind rebalancing. I know this because I have to always take my wife's car in and I always make sure that they rebalance her tires. <laughs> <laughs> why? why? <laughs> Does she uh, she turns real hard or something? I don't. I think she hits those little center little magnets in the street, so like it wears the tread on, <laughs> on one side. I think people tend to drive on one side of the uh, the lane versus the other. Sure, sure, sure. She favors one side of the road th- than the other. Yeah. My wife actually did that one time and like popped her tire. It was one of like those. Oh, big is that ones. right? Yeah. So yeah, it wasn't a rebalance. It was a full tire replacement. So oh, geez. she might get mad at me for telling that. But obviously, <laughs> obviously rebalancing is important, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that just to, to kind of touch on rebalancing too, depending on when you do it and depending on the account, it can potentially save money in taxes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you could use it as a tax harvesting strategy as well. Yeah, and then just another thing that you can focus on that something we control is saving money on taxes leading to a better investment experience. And what does as tax well. harvesting mean? That's a great question, Brent. Sorry for not explaining that a little bit better. Tax harvesting is essentially a taxable account. So that would be non-retirement accounts. You could sell the losing positions and rebuy other positions that are similar to them and create a tax loss and it will reduce your taxable income, thus reducing the amount of money you have to pay the government. Makes sense. That sounds like a smart strategy. I'm always interested in that. Yeah, paying, paying less most in taxes. Pe- most people are. I've never met someone who wants to pay more in taxes. Not yet. That's true. <laughs> I'm sure they're out there. Anything else on rebalancing? I think we covered it. What are the five keys? Let's go through them for everybody. I'll start with the first one since I covered that. So staying emotionally consistent. Brent, you had the next key? Yeah, the second one was low cost and keeping costs low. The third one was stocks and bonds. The fourth was strategy. And the last one was rebalance. Perfect. Rebalance those tires. Yeah, rebalance the tires. Balance those portfolios, people. Yeah. Both. So, Matt, how was your vacation? You know, I don't know. didn't know if we had time to go into it. You know, it was great. We went to France and Switzerland. Switzerland's okay. It's I didn't like it as much as France, but it's very adventurous. So, if you are into adventure vacation, Switzerland is perfect for you. Beautiful country. France is for people who love food and wine, which I happen to. We know this. Yes. Yeah. So, big food guy here. Food in Switzerland? Drinks in Switzerland? Were they good? So, Switzerland's a weird country. Um, I don't know how many people know this, but half of it is German. A small portion is Italian, and the, the other half is French. Mm. I'm not a big fan of the German-style food, so the food wasn't that great over there. They're very big on fatty cheeses and fatty meats. But once you got to the French-speaking side, the food improved. You know, anybody who's German listening to this is probably not going to call you and ask you for any advice because you just told them you don't <laughs> like their food. Well, that's okay. I mean, they might not like my food. <laughs> I don't like your food. <laughs> we can't do anything with... It's, it's funny because he's so critical of the food, but he eats Chipotle once a week. Yeah. Well, maybe for my next lunch, I won't eat Chipotle. Oh, well. I like... I like probably surprises. bet on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't like, I doubt that. So France, you really came back to the office 
with nothing but good things to say about France. Yeah, so the first time I went, I had a really bad experience. Like most people, I found the French to be a little bit rude. But this time, it was much better. I do know a few sentences in French, so that really helps. But for the most part, we were speaking English with almost everyone we came in contact with. And that was really nice and refreshing. And I guess what's been happening over there is in the late 80s, early 90s, in the school system, they made it mandatory to pick a second language. And most of the French students started picking English. So basically, anybody under 35 is speaking fluent English. Um, oh, that's actually r- nice to hear. And especially for anyone flying, you know, traveling to France. I'm just disappointed because you didn't get to use your French lessons as much as maybe you thought. Uh, no, I mean, I, we used it a little bit, you know, conversation starters and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very nice. Anything else um, on France? No, that's it. I, I think we're ready Favorite to go. Favorite restaurant? So we ate at a new restaurant there that just got a new Michelin star called uh, Le Chateaubriand, and that was in Paris. But actually, the best meal we had was at this small restaurant in the Beaujolais wine region called Emma Restaurant, and it was just an incredible meal. And highly recommend it. Anyone's awesome. going out there. Awesome. I think we're all we're all closed up today, right? Yeah. Anything you- else? Thanks for sharing on your vacation. I think that uh, if any of the listeners want to reach out to you for reach out to Matt for French wine region tips, are you opening up the phone lines for them? Yeah, we are. If you if you want help planning your your France or Switzerland trip, definitely email me. I'd, I'd <laughs> love right, to perfect. give some tips. Your itinerary looked uh, pretty in depth. Well, that's not me. That's my wife, but (laughs) I'll I'll gladly steal her work. Uh, Anything left today? No, Brent, you got anything for us? No, that's it. All right. All right. Thank you for joining us on the Retirement Plan Playbook. If you go to retirementplanplaybook.com, you can check out our show notes. And then if you leave a review on iTunes, we'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. RPA Wealth Management is a state-registered investment advisor located in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. RPA Wealth Management may only transact business in those states and jurisdictions in which it is registered or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. A copy of RPA Wealth Management's current disclosure statement, Form ADV Part 1, containing RPA Wealth Management's business operations, services, and fees is available by accessing the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website. RPA Wealth Management will provide Form ADV Part 2A from Brochure and 2B Brochure Supplement to interested parties upon request. Information provided on this podcast should not be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to acquire or dispose of any investment or engage in any other transaction. RPA Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personal investment advice or financial planning advice through its podcast. RPA Wealth Management podcasts are intended for information and educational purposes only.